0: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello everyone. This is Mehdi Sanglaji. I'm very excited and honored here uh, to have um, Dr. Christopher Harker with us in the house. Uh, Dr. Harker is an associate professor at the Institute for Global Prosperity, prosperity at uh, University College London. Um, uh, in in a second, I will ask Dr. Harker to introduce himself a little bit more uh, to, uh, to us. And uh, all I'm saying is uh, today we are going to talk to him about his book that came out in January twenty twenty one. Am I right?
1: Yeah, it was either it was either December twenty twenty or January twenty one, and it's it seems like it came out at both oh, okay. <laughs> in both months. Somewhere. So maybe it depends where uh, the, in the world you are, uh, or something it. like that. Oh, okay, uh, but but basically around about d- that time. Yeah,
2: depends on your spacing, I suppose. Okay, yeah, yeah. so the book, <laughs> the book is called "Spacing: Debt, Obligations, Violence, and Endurance in Ramallah." Palestine. It's it's, uh, been published by Duke University Press. Um, Chris, welcome. Thank you. So, um, could you go ahead and um, tell us a little bit about your background?
1: Sure. Um, uh, I want to apologize. I currently have COVID and physically I'm more or less fine, but I'm really... A bit self-conscious because I'm doing a podcast that I have a very scratchy voice that normally I, I don't have such a scratchy voice so um, apologies to anyone listening um uh, yeah if that comes through and it's irritating um I'm as you said uh, working at um, at UCL in the Institute for global prosperity for the last four and a half years and prior to that I was in the Department of Geography at Durham University for eight years. Um, my academic background and training is as a, a geographer, human geographer. Um, I did my first degree at Bristol and my MA and PhD at University of British Columbia in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Um, and then I moved back to the UK. Um, my research has largely focused on Palestine, and I take a very Um, kind of ethnographic approach which means I've looked at a range of questions um, because the questions I I look at tend to emerge from what people are experiencing and dealing with. I think what unites those questions is an interest in um, the sorts of agency that kind of quote-unquote ordinary people have while living amidst Um, the Israeli occupation and the Palestinian authority rule and and any other numbers of attempts to to govern their lives. And obviously that brings us to to this book where um, financial organizations, um, uh, banks have rapidly expanded the amount of consumer debt that uh, people can buy. And um, so this has become a a one of the the things that are uh, shaping people's lives in in Ramallah and, and indeed elsewhere. So uh, yeah, I think that's a nice
2: we'll, we'll go into the details of that. Um, okay, first thing first. Tell us about Sue. You talk so loud. Uh, you... Tell us about Sue. You you talk so loudly about Oh, my about dedication.
1: Her. This uh... is my uh, sister-in-law who. Um, died, unfortunately, at a very young age, um, as the book was coming towards publication. So the books uh, are dedicated to her
2: memory. You also mentioned that uh, she has been active in Palestine.
1: No, no, she was uh, was based in um, uh, America and uh, lived in Atlanta. she actually worked for Care International, and she had um, definitely some experience in the region, but she hasn't done any research in Palestine itself. Oh, I see.
2: Excellent. Okay. Um, the idea of the book, um, one of the, one of the uh, first questions I would like to ask you. A lot of people who have written my favorite books um, is uh, the idea of the first time you thought about the book, is it. Was it like an aha moment or <laughs> it like a fermentation of it sorts? Was,
1: yeah, the complete opposite of an aha moment. I think <laughs> fermentation is makes it that's almost like a generous interpretation. Um, I would almost characterize it as a struggle um, and may, maybe that, that has negative connotations and that's not necessarily appropriate, but um, it, it was a book that emerged out of research and <clears throat> the research began with a very clear focus. So I um, was awarded a, a Hume Early Career Fellowship and that project, when I wrote the grant, was designed to look at families and cities and I was interested in the role of families in shaping urban life and you know in the grant I discussed how families often get overlooked in, in urban processes but when the research began I found that um, although you know families were enabling migration to Ramallah and life in Ramallah in various ways, Um, bank debt was also playing an important role. And so the project itself became much more focused on debt. And this was both a process of me learning, um, trying to understand um, debt and finance from a, a sort of largely anthropological perspective, um, but then it was also an accounting of a a group of people in residents of Palestine who were also coming to grips with this phenomena, as something novel. Um, because, um, I'll just elaborate, because I'm sure most people won't have read the book, in Palestine um, in uh, 1948, when the State of Israel was created, a lot of the banks, um, sort of cutting a long story short, were... Um, uh, uh, closed or forced to move abroad to Jordan um, and in 67 when Israel invaded the what became the West Bank and Gaza Strip and Jerusalem um, they they closed the banking sector down and although um, there was uh, something of a banking sector um, it, it didn't really function in in any meaningful sense or in the way that we would recognize it um, until after the Oslo Accords were signed in uh, 1993 or say the mid-90s onwards. And even then, because of the lack of a legal, functioning legal system in what then became the Palestinian territories, the banking system or banking sector didn't um, offer loans or or sell credit until very recently 2007-8 was when we start to see levels of consumer credit really um skyrocket and so this was a very the the research that i was doing the field research was conducted largely in 2013 so this was a very novel lived experience for people even though there is actually a, a, a kind of history of Banking and finance and, and credit in Palestine—it's—it's it's not something that's held in in lived memory necessarily.
2: I see. Uh, very early in the book, you say you, you 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 say this. You say place as extrovert, open and always in process, rather than closed and static. This is for me was very, a very novel idea because usually, okay. Like, okay, time changes place place stays uh, the same mm-hmm. but um you explained very well how how this that's that's not exactly the case uh could you explain that please
1: yeah of course i mean this uh, as i said my training is largely as a human geographer and i think this is one of the insights in the books that that's um drawing on a geographical tradition of thinking and and in this particular context i'm sure many geographers will recognize the kind of way i have thought about places as as the way that doreen massey's uh, work encourages to to think about places open and she uses a phrase coming togetherness or thrown togetherness um that sense of place as dynamic as um a confluence of flows and um, in her later work she she um, uses the conceptual idea of assemblage to also think about places um uh, something that that's constituted by multiple processes and and forces and materialities. Um, and I think this, um, way of thinking is not just theoretically appealing for me, but it's also very useful empirically to understand cities like Ramallah, where there's all kinds of, you know, people and um, ideas and money going in and out, and um, even uh palestine more generally the palestinian territories are are, if you like radically open to forms of not just uh colonial occupation but kind of the international governance that um overlays that occupation now after after so many decades um so i think it it really helps capture the yeah both as you as you alluded to the dynamism but also the multiple um, processes and, and spatialities that shape a particular place, whether that's a, a home space or a city or a territory.
2: Um, so what, I guess my question, um, I haven't dropped my, my mind um, around this question, but I, I mean, I guess my question is, um, how how do we get people to think of? I mean, or or is it your understanding that people already uh, think of place as extrovert and open, or, or or is it something that you want more scholars or people to uh, to think of? Um, they think of a place.
1: Yeah, I I think um, I I don't know if I've thought about it quite in those terms, in the sense that that's. My my mission, <laughs> um, but I think it's important um, if you are trying to understand social phenomena. So the book is trying to understand debt, people's experiences of debt, and and at its simplest, I think this this um, geographical argument about place is important because it highlights and and argues that we can't just focus our attention on. The, the material place itself. We need to look beyond that because there's all sorts of ways in which what's happening elsewhere, whether it's relatives who live in other parts of the West Bank, whether it's uh, relatives who live abroad, whether it's uh, international donor organisations um, who could be headquartered in any number of European or North American cities, Um all of these um, uh, people and the things they're doing are shaping what's happening in this one neighborhood, um, I, where I was conducted research. And, and obviously then we've got to look, <clears throat> not everyone has the, the same power to, to kind of uh, impact place. And, and of course, the, the Israeli occupation it remains the primary shaper of uh of life in in the occupied territories, um, but there are many other kind of factors and nuances too. Excellent.
2: So let's get to debt. You talk about geography of debt, and uh, friends who know me uh, know that I'm I'm crazy about about I'm um, bananas about uh, David uh, the late David Graeber, and. Um, uh, read um, and the um, I, should, I should tell you probably. And the first time I was looking on the um, uh, website, uh, I was looking for books uh, to read on the website of the New Books Networks, and um, I came across this um, title. Spacing that, I have to say, it's a it's a. Capturing, captivating um, title. And uh, the debt part all, all, was more important to me because by that time I, I, I knew that through the, the quintessential, quintessential uh, in, uh, significance of debt um, through David Graeber. And um, imagine my surprise and um, excitement to see his name. Almost all over the book, no, not all, all over, but in a lot of places in the book. Do you think it's in the same vein? Do you you are you are trying to make that more more known, more understandable. The 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 impact it has on people's uh, lives, um, the, the devastating impact it has on people's mm-hmm. lives and everything. Is that in the same vein? In the same. Kind of project?
1: Yeah, I think you could definitely absolutely say that. I think David Graeber's uh, book that you allude to is obviously one of the, the key references in the field if you're thinking about debt in any way that isn't purely as an economist would think. And I'm, I'm sure many economists have, have read that book too. And um, the I think it's useful to think about how Graeber himself is drawing on a rich tradition of anthropology. Of course, that that has always been interested in um, how lives are made and um, continually created through relationships of what we think of as borrowing and lending, um, and you know we in our societies would pass into social and, and economic categories. Um, I think, yeah, obviously Graeber's work's heavily influenced by both Marx, but also Mauss and that Maussian tradition of, of anthropology is rich in in studies of uh, debt. And certainly, uh, as well as Graeber, um, a lot of anthrop. Contemporary anthropologies of of debt and finance have been incredibly influential on my thinking. Um, just to name a couple of <laughs> people who were colleagues with David at, at LSE, uh, um, Deborah James's book "Money from Nothing," which was looking at um, the role of debt in post-apartheid South Africa, was was very influential, for, particularly for the importance of aspiration and. Um, the way in which her ethnography showed um, provides this this very compelling explanation for why people take on these what on the face of it seem like horrendous, horrendously crippling loans and, and debts, and um, and in other words, how you know money fits within life projects. That and, and obviously Deborah's book also is incredibly. Um, uh, nuanced in how it then understands those life projects as part of this broader national transition from apartheid to post-apartheid and the, the post-apartheid malaise, if one can call it that, of the 2000s in South Africa. And then also Laura Baer's book, Navigating Austerity, which is uh, an ethnography in um of the Huggully Hoog- I'm not sure I'm saying that right uh, river in in India was another kind of wonderful um <clears throat> exploration of how thinking about finance through um everyday life helps us understand it um not as an abstraction but as something that has meaningful effects in all sorts of ways and but there's but also I think what laura shows is is the kind of disconnect um between a a white way, ways of thinking about finance that that don't understand the the social ethos it, it could have and and maybe in in other contexts it it does or, or historically may or may not have had um so i think i'm um, i to come back to your question um yeah i'm i'm very concerned in my book, too, to think about, okay, what, what what is debt as a shaping force in people's lives? And in this context, how does it shape the lives of people who are normally thought about amongst at least critical social scientists in terms of how they live under colonial occupation? Um, so this was something new, but also then... Um, as, sorry, it's something new for the people in Ramallah, as I've explained earlier, but, but also then conceptually it's interesting and there's, there's probably more work to be done to think about how do we think about finance and, and colonialism in, as a present problem as opposed to just a historical um, or, or, or something that's more rooted in history.
2: So when you talk about the geography of debt, um, you mentioned neoliberalism, which is um, a problematic word a word for a lot of people because they, they want to just completely deny it. They say it doesn't it doesn't uh, exist, and on the other hand, um, a lot of people um, blame everything on on this word or or. or kind of lazily um, used uh, this term to like tag every, every problem they see. Um, not you. <laughs> you. You go into the, the details of uh, how uh, neoliberal, neoliberal um, policies have um, kind of devastated <laughs> Romala and a, a lot of the family relationships and everything like
1: that.
2: Could you go into some details about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think your the 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 way you've discussed it's quite helpful because, as you say in in the book, my own approach is someone who's very wary of uh, accounts that just label everything uh, neoliberalism. Maybe this reflects um, approaches more in in human geography. I'm aware in the broader world that the the first issue of people just acknowledge not acknowledging the the kind of uh, harms that are out there in, in contemporary liberal forms of government um, is, is more of an issue. But yeah, I find in, uh, and of course, you know, I'm not at all original in saying that, but it were in saying this that, that it is a term that's loosely applied uh, conceptually. And I'm quite concerned if um, I do engage with debates to be very clear about what I'm engaging with. Um I'm not sure I ever um, characterize what's going on in Ramallah as neoliberal, um, which, which has to be understood very carefully. I think this is important, and this is what I try to do in, in the book is to really firstly focus on on actual processes that that can be named and and maybe, thought about as neoliberal. So, for instance, um, the idea that people can prosper if they are given greater access to credit is an idea that that circulates around the the globe, really, and is um, undoubtedly consistent with what many people would think of as neoliberal ideology. This, this idea has certainly taken root in um, the the Palestinian uh, Monetary Authority and the, the banking sector there, which itself is probably um, not surprising, given the sorts of education and work that people in those sectors have done. So these are people who will go abroad to get PhDs um, in, in economics and then you know, maybe work for the World Bank and the IMF. And so the the, the groupthink um, that emerges or, or at least prevalent ways of thinking that emerge out of those organisations are then reflected in the Palestinian context. Um, so when I say I don't name things neoliberalism, it's not because I'm not concerned to, to name these sorts of processes. I think it's more about precision and... Um, being clear about what is happening and what isn't happening, you know. So, for instance, you, you know, a lot of people would think neoliberalism is heavily connected with privatisation. Um, but this is is quite a challenging idea in the Palestinian context when it's hard to, to discern if anything was public in the way that... Uh, Public is imagined in in liberal Western democracies. Um, there may be like forms of communal ownership, and anyway, I essentially I just get I worry about the nuances, and so I'm therefore I worry about using big terms that, as you said, can become just tags or or, or kind of catchphrases. Um, but having said that. I'm uh, Part of my thinking in terms of how we understand economics in everyday life has been um, very influenced by, I would broadly what I would refer to as a kind of Foucauldian way of thinking neoliberalism without wanting to get into those debates um, necessarily. But people like Stephen Collier's work and his book Post-Soviet Social, um, which again, He's coming from an anthropological background and he's tracing very precisely you know, what socio-economic and political economic and cultural economic transformations have taken place, and how they can be traced back to particular thinkers who very explicitly do identify as neoliberal. Um, that, that isn't what my book does, but I think that kind of work um, and the way in which neoliberalism operates in those contexts um is is something that i'm you know um very influenced by also people like clive barnett within geography let's
2: get to the hard
1: parts uh, at
2: least for me <laughs> i'm uh, i come from a political science background so <clears throat> these parts were a bit well challenging for me uh, I had to well Consult uh, internet um, dictionaries, Wikipedias and stuff uh, uh, to 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 go ahead in these parts. So, one of them was the, uh, this: you said debts are topologies. So, what on earth are topologies?
1: Yeah, so I think this is where I'm I'm getting into the the weeds as a geographer. So, I mean, topology is a a a type of space, or it's a spatial concept. So. I think the broader argument, probably just to take one step back about the book is, is as the title hopefully indicates, we need to think about debt spatially. And, um, you, you know, maybe you could say geographically. And so, in other words, when I came to this problem of debt as an empirical problem, I then turned to the academic literature and it tells you, Um, people like Graeber tell you a lot about debt in terms of its social consequences. And we also understand debt in temporal terms. So probably the most common and easiest way to understand debt is, you know, I borrow money now and I've got to pay it back later. And what I'm trying to convey with my argument about spacing debt is that we also need to understand that when someone... Lens or someone else borrows that this creates a relation or a relationship that's social, it's temporal, but it's also a spatial relationship. So it's binding people to certain spaces, it's connecting people across spaces. So then if we come to the language of topology, and I also use the term topography in the book, yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, so I'll try to deal with both of them in the same um, same uh, paragraph, so to speak. Um, these are um, what um, these are uh, quite precise terms for thinking about space in particular ways. Um, as I uh, note in the book, these are terms that um, have been used a little bit in uh, contemporary or or recent geographical debates. Um, So there's a way in which I'm speaking a little bit to those debates and the authors. And when I argue that dot debt is a topology, what I'm saying is it's a particular type of space and it's probably the most straightforward way of saying it is, is a relational kind of space. So when I'm teaching this idea of topologies or, or relational space to students, I actually often talk about um, my, uh, I give an example of the sentence, I am close to my brother. So if we think about my relationship with my brother in topographic terms, this is, not topological so this is more about material space this this isn't true my brother lives in atlanta and i live in uh, london so topographically there is a huge physical topographic distance between us but if i say i'm close to my brother you probably immediately understand without me saying that i'm not talking about where we are in the world we're talking about an emotional relationship or a social bond that exists between us. Now, this isn't in any way material, you know, um, but but it's still very real, and it's um, yeah, it, it's it's a very specific connection, uh, a, a specific relation, um, and in the same way, a debt is a, a kind of bonding. Um, that that has a specific geography. So um, there's the example I uh, in the book. There's the um, there's a, a I quote a joke that one of my participants made, where um, uh, someone says uh, reports that a friend of his took a loan out to get married, and uh, if he can't repay the debt. Um, the bank will take his wife instead or something so it's on one hand uh, you know it's a funny joke but on the other hand it actually illustrates that 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 person then has that relationship with the bank um and is if you like tied to it i think this language of tied and bonding is is obviously historically you know something that debts have always been talked about in those terms right
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Apartment. You said you, you you told us about it, uh, about the joke, and I, I didn't have it in my questions, but um, you you talk about um, how in all um, Europe uh, people would run away to other countries in order to, to um, well escape uh, debts. Uh, I don't, I don't remember the the exact term you used. Uh, it had leg in it. Le, uh, leg bailing, yeah. Leg. <laughs> That's amazing. Leg bailing. Um, so did they just, just ran away to other countries, and they, I'm guessing, they lived in other countries for the rest of their lives just to avoid.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So this is uh, Gustav Peebles' research that I was um, drawing on. And he has this great paper where he, he kind of offers a or, or he starts a conversation in some ways, probably without exactly meaning to, about uh, the geography of debt. And as as you say, he looks at practices of, of leg bailing, where people would literally flee the jurisdiction to avoid paying their debts, but then they couldn't live in that geography in that space um and he there's another practice that i've um forgotten because it's been a while since i've read that paper where people are able to discharge their debts and stay stay within in the the community and uh, he's also writing about debt as prison but i think that works useful um because it shows how those two types of space why i would say as relational and physical or topological and topographic are are related of course um so there's no um separation between them even though we can think about them as distinctive types of spaces they're kind of enfolded into each other um so yeah if you're not going to honor your debt um maybe you've got a leg bail it and leave the jurisdiction
2: what a euphemism! Like <laughs> um, Yeah. You also talk about death ecologies. This, this is even uh, like um <laughs> further mm-hmm. in the in in the in the woods, <laughs> I guess.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
2: So, um, how, how is death an ecology?
1: I think more than death be, I I think ecologies, um, is oh, I'm using that term less. Um, in terms of its environmental connotations or, um, you know, to think about nature or or anything like that, and more just to um, use it to think about when we think about an ecosystem, that word describes multiple things, Uh, and i was going to say in the same space but it actually helps avoid the idea of a container in which things are in It, it it describes again this it's sort of linked to this idea of place we discussed of um a a definable system ecosystem let's say um where there's many dynamic processes and if you like i was using ecologies to think about how all of um a, a specific uh i, I refer to it as the Ramallah debt ecology so a specific time and space where lots of these financial and um debt processes kind of come together into a kind of coherence um that that's you know maybe more or less fleeting and um but but there's something um Yeah, coherent enough that it it has kind of meaning so while of course people in Ramallah don't talk about the Ramallah debt ecology that's something I invented uh, as an analytical term Um, in the book I do talk about this idea of Ramallah being a bubble or an exception and and of course other Palestinian scholars have picked up on this Um, so there is this sense amongst the population that Ramallah is something Different and distinct, um, even from other cities in Palestine.
2: Yeah, that was um, a question I would um, ask later. But now that you have mentioned, why makes Ramallah so different? You you mentioned like extensively in the book. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I uh, Ramallah is uh, originally a, a very oh, just a. A small village for quite a lot of history, or, or it becomes a you know slightly bigger town. But unlike um, some of the cities in Palestine, it doesn't necessarily um, have a long history, and it really um, becomes a city or even, not even a city, I mean, arguably some people say it's still not a city, but arguably only really becomes a city or be- starts the process of becoming a city after 1948 um, and the creation of Israel and the Palestinian Nakba, when uh, Palestinian Palestinians fleeing uh, Israeli forces rush to uh, relatives um who were living there or to land and a uh, 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 force to, to live as as refugees on those lands. Um, so it's only then because of this influx of refugees that um, it starts the process of becoming a city and then it's really only after Oslo in 1993 when it it really, begins the process of becoming a city. And that's connected to the fact that Palestinians are not allowed to govern in East Jerusalem as part of the Oslo Accords. And Ramallah, which is almost a, a suburb of Jerusalem, um, becomes the the nearest place for the seat of this um, newly created at that time Palestinian authority. And um, from that point on, because of the huge investment like literal and figurative in the Palestinian Authority and the uh, way in which it works, which in- includes corruption and nepotism, etc. Um, the, y- you know, people are really, uh, uh, if, if they want to work in the, the public sector, then Ramallah is the place where all the jobs are. So, Ramallah is the city where all bar. at least at the time I was doing research of the Palestinian ministry headquarters are located uh, and it's become the de facto capital Um, and in in many ways the the kind of geographies of its emergence are I always think quite similar to London in the UK you've got a centralised you know centralisation of government and a centralisation of the economy uh, often to the detriment of other places too Excellent.
2: Which brings us to what Thomas Jefferson said he feared more than standing armies: the banks. You go into details of how foreign banks have helped make this this idea of Ramallah, this 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 situation in Ramallah. Uh, What are the roles and? uh, or IMF and, and our World Bank um, have. Uh, did, did, did they have anything to do
1: with this? Yeah I mean I think um, uh, the short answers yes but the the longer answers were yeah. qu- quite nuanced and probably even after all my research there's probably more digging I'd need to do to tell that particular historical story and um, so it's clear that um uh that that um the international organizations that that govern palestine or play a very significant role in in governing palestine after the oslo accords um have really shaped uh politics and and economics and social life there and primarily because Palestine so reliant on, on donor funding. So, you know, the holding the purse strings and setting the criteria by which money is dispersed and the sorts of uh, behavior, policy making, or uh, otherwise one has to adhere to have, have undoubtedly um, shaped the uh, development of what has taken place. I think it's also important though alongside that story, to recognize um, that within Palestine itself, the uh, leadership is always trying to problem-solve in various ways. And particularly at the Palestine Monetary Authority, which is the central bank in waiting, I guess is the sort of effective shorthand for describing that. They are in um, the the mid, or let's say late, sort of two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, two thousand and nine. The second Intifada is sort of petering out, slash, come to an end. The physical infrastructure and the economic infrastructure of uh, Palestine or the the occupied territories has been devastated. And they're now faced with this problem, like how do we um, make people's lives better? How do we create opportunities for them to to live um, somewhat meaningful, valuable lives under the prevailing conditions of occupation? And as mentioned, many of them may have had training in the IMF and World Bank. And that's where the kind of solutions that are developed have a, a strong... Um, Uh, alignment with um you know what the world bank or the imf would say but it's it's crucial to recognize it wasn't that the world bank and imf came in and said here's a policy plan do this do this do that it was more a case of um the monetary authority saying okay we're gonna do this we're gonna prevent you know Uh, banks from moving as much capital capital outside of Palestine we're going to develop a credit registry and we've now um, because of um, the digital payments of salaries got the capability to to do that and to monitor flows of money in ways that couldn't do beforehand Um, and then you've got a situation where international donors are very worried um about corruption and giving money and want kind of transparency and so uh, kind of pushing towards digital financial systems too um and at the population you know as a, a population level then you've got people you know looking for jobs um looking for ways to um buy housing or access housing um and those options uh you know, if you want housing where the jobs are, uh, incredibly limited and becoming very expensive, uh, and so the emergent, you know, debt becomes this uh, solution for for various kinds of problems or, or solution to various kinds of problems and uh, desires.
2: Do
1: you suppose there's a there's a kind
2: of dialectic between the Closed and fragmented uh, geography, and let's say identity of uh, nowadays what we call Palestine, and uh, and on the other hand, the openness of um, Palestine to uh, foreign uh, foreign governance foreign donor governors, like. Do they go hand hand in hand, shaking jowl, or or is it sort of something like uh, accidental?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's something I, I explicitly talk about in the book is exactly that. Like, on the one hand, um, colonial occupation is about creating a lots of borders and barriers and prisons, and um, there's the you know, language of sort of carceral archipelagos and, um, you know, people who are familiar with Palestine in terms of the the occupied territories will know all about the checkpoint system and the ID system and movement restrictions, as well as then um, the, the kind of military incursions and... Um, sort of violent disciplining of Palestinian life and imprisonment, all of these factors, you know, create um, undoubtedly conditions that are um, carceral in, in in many ways, shapes and forms. Uh, and then this does leave a, a kind of political level. It creates a, a kind of vulnerability. Um, and... Um, uh, a, a kind of openness that um, international bodies can um, exploit or, or or at least uh, uh, sort of fill or, or become become enfolded in um, yeah, yeah. Um,
2: you do mention um on your own, you do uh, you do mention um, Israel as a settler colonialism, and you quote your own participants as saying um, as calling Israel as an appetite. At any point, did you think of the backlash it might have from the? Well, right-wingers, Christian Zionists, um, I don't know, anybody, like all these groups that are looking for tagging anyone anti-Semite if they make any critique of uh, Israel?
1: Um, no, I don't think I did think about them. I mean, I think when one works in Palestine and in solidarity with Palestinians, um, the firstly, you know, at least speaking for myself, I come, you know, I'm coming from a, a place of, of privilege with regards to the um, people that I, the people who've participated in my study. And I think that the key question really to ask is, is how do you use your various privileges to enhance or or share their voices and perspectives um, and how you know in designing and conducting research can you do things that will actually help them in, in their lives you know in a very active sense um, so one thing for instance that I'm doing this summer which is very much on the back of the, the research in the book is: I'll be working with uh, MAS, the Economic and Political Research Center, and the Palestine Monetary Authority and the Palestinian Capital Markets Authority to look at the financial inclusion um, agenda, which has taken hold. Uh, the, the process began formally in 2018 it, it actually obviously started a lot earlier um, but you know having done this intensive ethnographic research with with ordinary residents if you like of uh, Alberta um, I think the key question for me is you know if decisions are being made by by government figures how do we make sure that those decisions, those policies, practices, whatever it is, actually, actually benefit people on the ground. Um, and, um, yeah, as I said, how, how can I use my kind of privileged position to, to help them build better lives? I'm sort of less concerned about myself.
2: um, I have a master's degree in Middle Eastern studies and, um, a lot of my former colleagues um, I and mean classmates um, went to Palestine and they, your your answer reminds me of, of them that they have almost exactly uh, verbatim the same answer um, if you go and see Palestine there's nothing else you can do but to defend these people I mean it's yeah I, yeah, is, yeah. I, I, mean,
1: yeah, I, I would certainly agree I think when you see what happens on the ground it's not debatable or you know it, it's not one of the things that's nuanced it's it's clear and it's violent and it's unjust and uh, yeah it's not it's not an area that um anyone I think who's who's kind of witnessed it feels like there's <laughs> any kind of doubt about what's going on or, or you know any questions I, th- I think it's you know where there's issues. It's it's over forms of produced ignorance and, um. But yeah, I think all, I, I mean, a lot of people who work on Palestine are, um, it, it obviously invested in in questions of politics and conflict. And I think one thing that distinguishes my work a little bit, or at least certainly I've always thought about it this way, is that um, beyond. Kind of the, the big geopolitical questions people are still making their lives, and my research has always been kind of interested in in how Palestinians do that and what kinds of agency and capacity they have, um, and to to kind of both understand that and work with that. Um,
2: exactly, and um, I have to say, kudos! It comes out in the book. I mean, you have to read. Like five pages, and you know where you stand, where <laughs> Chris <laughs> Parker stands on this issue. So, um, okay, um, for the last questions, um, the methodology, your your book for um, okay, now now I'm just uh, shamelessly. <laughs> Uh, advertising your book because I really want people Thank to go, <laughs> to, go <laughs> to go and read it. Um, the methodology is just mind-blowingly good. You you use it's a combination of financial analysis, um, uh, urban studies, and geographical studies, or whatever they call that. I, I don't I don't know anything about geography, uh, debt studies, um, gender studies. it's it's but there's there's nothing there's nothing forced about it. They're all weaved together the way we understand all of it in in society. Like when when you go out, you are all of these. You are you are a person in debt. You're you're a man or a woman. You are you are in a urban urban uh, uh, space your your book seems like life itself because you you do not deny, I I'm I'm serious about I'm, I'm very sincere about this um how how did you do that i mean uh, tell us about the the methodology you came up with and um, in in continuation of that um I, I have another question but but let's do this
1: sure sure first. that's a very uh kind thing to say to any social scientists i think if you can capture something like life itself i'm sure i don't quite get all the nuances and details but certainly um my approach um to to research at least since my phd has been very much aligned with what's often called grounded theory which is <clears throat> um thinking about the what a you know, might be thought about as empirical contexts or the worlds in which we, we operate as provocations for theorising and as sources of, of theoretical insight as much as the the books that, you know, we as, as academics read too. And <clears throat> so firstly, I've, I, I always hope, I always aspire and try to, to keep everything on a level playing field intellectually, to keep um, you know the ideas that I draw from from scholars, um, uh, to use them um, alongside the the ideas that I uh, draw from participants and and what I encounter in the field. Policies, uh, uh, the the material space of the city. Um, I think then, alongside that, or or in order to facilitate that, I think an ethnographic approach is useful because um, because it's immersive because you come to grips with the nuances of of peoples. You have the opportunity to come to Uh, appreciate the nuances of people's lives the richness the diversity and um a lot there's there's probably also a third part which is i think human geography globally or or i shouldn't say globally that's a terrible thing to say in in anglo anglophone human geography which is not at all global it's very parochial um but within anglophone speaking countries it's quite a small discipline because it doesn't have that um big base in in north or in america in particular so i think human geographers are trained to always look beyond the borders of our discipline so i've always been very curious about you know interesting work and and discipline whatever the discipline it doesn't really matter if it's telling me something about a debt or or politics as lived experience or um, uh, whatever it might be capacity then i'm going to engage with that work because it's helping me to understand what i'm seeing and experiencing and so i think maybe those are the key ingredients
2: so um you uh, the, the question which was in continuation of the uh, uh, previous one uh, you quite extensively mentioned and make references to um a lot of people a lot of uh, scholars from the region and many many of whom are women and uh, um could kind of help uh, wondering if that was um, a, like a conscious decision you made before starting? It's like, oh, God, I'm, I'm going to go read them themselves and, and, and hear them, and um, then this happened? Or this is something uh, you just started the process and came about naturally? I, uh, well, naturally is not, not exactly a good word, probably, or for the mm. lack of a better word, naturally, uh, but, uh, or something else?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, some of the, the the key thinkers of Palestinian life, are, are people like Lisa Taraki and Rima Hamami, um, that I draw on extensively. And, and also I think it's important to mention, uh, as I do in the book, that the research itself was really a Co-production with two research assistants, Darine Sayad and Rima Shabeta, and although you know, eventually I sat down to, to kind of write the book. Um, <clears throat> their insights and um, help with the research process were. <clears throat> sorry, I'm getting now to the point where my voice is <laughs> running out of steam. But is yeah. COVID kicks in, but um, yeah, their insights were really crucial, and I think. um I mean, uh, m- m- my r- initial response to your question is if you want to understand Palestinian in life, in Ramallah, those are the people you've got to read. Like, they're, they're the ones uh, who, who give you the the insights and the detail. Um, I did collaborate with the Institute of Women's Studies at Birzeit University uh, in order to recruit Doreen and Rima. And I think working with, as a, a mixed gender team, as we, we were, was crucial because um, gendered experiences of, of debt are very, um, not entirely distinct, but they're different. And it's important to kind of recognize the way different people, men and women, but, but also you know young and old parents and children are having distinct uh experiences and i think having a, a mixed gender team was useful actually to kind of appreciate those um the the differences um and the way they're structuring experience too like it's even within the context of ramallah these experiences are not uniform they're, there's you know a lot of distinctions and and Gender is one of the cleavages for those uh, differences.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it came, comes out in the book too, uh, the whole gender issue, about the debt too, of course. Um, that question um, what's your next big project?
1: So, after finishing this book, I was conscious that when i was writing it that there was this financial inclusion process going on and i hadn't really attended to it as much as as i could have done because i was kind of more focused on debt. but i've been doing some research um into it and as i mentioned briefly earlier what i want to um think about now is how can we reshape financial inclusion as a if i almost think about it as a world making project so when these organizations are promoting financial inclusion ultimately it's because they believe sincerely or or otherwise that it's improving people's lives now i think we have a lot of evidence that 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 really isn't the case but given the amount of belief and credibility that's attached to financial inclusion projects what i'm broadly interested in is can, can we kind of transform them or, or queer them to to actually function so that they uh, improve people's lives and one of the ways i might i'm going to think about this is in relation to the concept of prosperity so if we move beyond let's say, hegemonic understandings of prosperity as wealth, and start asking people, what do they understand by prosperity? What does it mean to be prosperous? What does it mean to uh, live a good and fulfilling life? Um, can we use those sorts of questions to transform how financial inclusion functions to actually start providing the things that people want? Um, So this is quite an expansive vision and um, hopefully the research we're doing that's just this summer looking at the existing financial inclusion program in Palestine provides the first uh, step into kind of thinking about how those transformations might be enacted. Excellent.
2: Okay, Dr. Harker,
1: thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you ever so much. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, so was all mine. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com.
1: It's my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>